You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post. We're coming at you from a grey and drizzly Friday afternoon in Hong Kong. It's a holiday week here, so a quick hit episode from us. We're keeping it in-house with some expert analysis on some of the issues we touched on last week. We briefly discussed the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and the potential for a boycott. There's been no material developments on that this week, but a lot more rhetoric and perhaps a little bit of political mischief with regard to potential boycott in Washington. We're going to have some discussion of the importance of the Beijing Olympics to a rising China. We'll discuss the political shenanigans in Washington, D.C. and have some quick chat on Biden's tax plan, Suga in Washington and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's diplomatic tour. Let's go straight to John Carter and Joe Shin. Joined today by Joe Shin and John Carter to discuss the week in geopolitics. Last week's show had a focus on the consumer boycotts that were raging in China over Western companies' stance on Xinjiang. On the podcast last week, we touched on the potential impact this might have on the tarnishing the image of the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. Um, this week, the story has sort of grown a little bit in the sense that the United States State Department spokesperson Ned Price said early in the week that the United States was consulting with allies over whether there would be any sort of boycott. Uh, Subsequently, a State Department uh, spokesperson came out to clarify and said, contrary to some reporting, there would not be a boycott. This gives me a sense, John, that there's a little bit of mischief perhaps coming out of um, the US government, perhaps trying to draw attention to an issue which they knew would inflame things a little bit, uh, real politic at its finest. Well, indeed. And uh, they may be, it may have been intentional. It may have been uh, Mr. Price at the State Department uh, um, uh, overstepping his grounds. But in any case, the it, it uh, ends up being a trial balloon uh, talking about the possible boycott. And uh, we, we know, for instance, there's uh, broad support in Canada for a boycott of the Olympics and broad support in certain parts of Europe. So where do we go with this? One thought is that uh, there will not be a boycott by the athletes, but there may be a boycott by some sponsors. Mm. Um, Although, as we've seen with the consumer boycotts we talked about last week, uh, this uh, has consequences, as uh, H&M and Nike and others found out. If you do something that the Chinese government doesn't like, and through its various organs, it can make that displeasure known and can affect your bottom line. Mm. So where does this go? Um, I'm suspecting that there will not be a political boycott of the Olympics, but again, a question about um, sponsors, uh, companies uh, boycotting the Olympics. Remember, there's two kinds of sponsors here. There's there's a sponsors who directly sponsor the International Olympic Committee in the Beijing Olympics. And then there are the sponsors who pay for the broadcasts in various countries. And, of course, this is a a big issue in the United States. All the big U.S. companies will want to buy ad time on these Olympic broadcasts. Uh, one uh, curious fact is that the, uh, the at least the current schedule for the Super Bowl, which is the most watched TV program in America year in and year out, will occur at the same time as the Olympics, or at least part of the Olympics. And so what does this mean for viewership and what does this mean for consumer sponsorship? But in terms of the Olympics, uh, could 
advocacy groups and others mm-hmm. in America put pressure on Coca-Cola and McDonald's and all of the other big sponsors to not sponsor or at least to cut back their sponsorship. We'll have to wait and see. It's too early to say. Yeah. Uh, Joe Shin, I wanted to ask you about the significance, I guess, of the Olympics, but also maybe just by the very fact of having having the word boycott in the same sentence as Beijing Olympics, that that's not going to go down too well in the halls of power in, in China. Oh, exactly, Fingba. I mean, for the Beijing Winter Olympics is so important for the Chinese government now. I think it is the number one item on the, on the agenda. Uh, if you remember the 2008 Summer Beijing Olympics, you know, this is a kind, kind of coming out party for China. You know, from that moment, China is becoming a great power recognized by the, the international community on the, in the world. So China is hoping that the, you know, the, the Winter Olympics next year will serve the similar kind of, you know, uh, uh, significance as kind of uh, uh, milestone to witness China's rise. So uh, if the U.S. is uh, flirting this idea of uh, boycotting the Winter Olympics, it's really, you know, angered, you know, uh, uh, China. China is trying very hard to persuade other countries not to even think about boycotting Beijing Winter Olympics. As you can see, everywhere Chinese diplomats are, are mobilized. You can see in Paris, you know, the Chinese ambassador has visited the headquarters of the uh, uh, International Olympics Committee and talking about the Winter Olympics. And when Xi Jinping called uh, Merkel, they talked about uh, the Winter Olympics as well. So in the in the coming year, I think one a very easy job for every country is if you want to have a good relationship with China is just to say, I really love uh, the ice and the snow in the suburb of Beijing, and that will help you a lot. <laughs> or or the, I'm sure the opposite is true too. If you want to put their nose out of joint, then you, you say something detrimental and I'm wondering like how much of a boycott is too much because there was an interesting op-ed in the New York Times the other day saying that they shouldn't have um, a political boycott they should send the athletes but the athletes should be allowed to protest how they see fit Mm. I mean how much of a a concern would it be for for instance to the Chinese leadership if a gold medalist from the United States took to the podium wearing a free Tibet t-shirt or something like that or free Hong Kong you know these sorts of political slogans well I think for these kind of things Beijing has experience because during the uh, Beijing Olympics in 2008, there are similar concerns. There were similar concerns as well that, you know, some people were uh, shouting slogans or or whatever. But uh, it seems like uh, at the end of the day, the Beijing Summer Olympics were remembered a quite successful uh, sports event. So I think as long as uh, athletes are coming, I think this is not something too worrisome for for the Chinese government. Yeah, and I wonder how much of it is... is it's just as important for it to be, I guess, portrayed properly to a domestic audience as it would be internationally. We saw other places hold major sporting events that have had human rights criticism over the years. Russia hosting the World Cup and the Olympic uh, Winter Olympics a number of years ago, but they all played very well to the domestic audience. John, as you know, the messaging often in uh, states is 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 as much for for in China, particularly as as much for the domestic audience as international. Well, indeed, and um, I'm sure that China will control the message domestically, and it uh, it remains to be seen how they will be able to control the international message. Um, The broadcasts, my suspicion is, for instance, the TV cameras may be controlled by the Chinese, and then they give a, or they rent a feed to various uh, global broadcasters to sell to their domestic audiences, which you can 
uh, chopping channels you want to and add over commentary on top of that. But the actual shots will be controlled by the Chinese. So if there are protests, suddenly the screen goes dark and they're not available anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I I think what you'll see is in in typical modern Chinese fashion a a high degree of control here. Um, But... Perhaps that backfires if it goes too far. We'll see. Mm. Um, it's, it's early days, and it's very difficult to discern how far this is going to go. If you don't have a political boycott, how do you get your message across? Um, and do you get your message across, or is it just a big non-event? Yeah. And, and John, there's also one more uh, important thing is that any message about boycotting uh, the Beijing Winter Olympics would be used by the Chinese government to boost the nationalism at home, mm-hmm. for sure. You know, uh, we have prepared such a wonderful party, and it's these bad guys that are trying to destroy our party. You know, we invited them to come here, and they don't want to be. So this is a, this is going to be the message. You Foreign know. interference and all of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, Olympics will become another card that the, the Washington is trying to play against the China. They don't understand our domestic problems and they don't care about our domestic problems and all they care about is themselves. Yes, no, you know, it's it's an easy uh, theme to play. It it would resonate. A lot of um, a lot of road to travel between now and then. I yes. think we're going to be talking about this again. Oh yes. Um, there's a few other things which um, this week have popped up, and, and in the coming days, which will perhaps um, show a bit more about how the Biden administration is shaping up in in terms of its relationship with China. Without involving China, the uh, global tax plan, which seems to have made some sort of breakthrough this week to have a minimum corporate tax, um, global corporate tax the world over. Um, John, this is your wheelhouse. Tell us, how does this affect China, if at all? And what does it say about America's, I I suppose, return to the the multilateral table? Well, it it is yet another initiative by the Biden administration to try to resume engagement with the international community. I mean, rejoining the the World Health Organization, um, trying, uh, removing objections to the new head of the World Trade Organization, uh, re-entering the Paris Global Climate Accord, all the same theme. We're going to engage with the world and we're going to work with our friends and allies to try to achieve results. And and so, what now, the U.S. is doing this both for selfish reasons because it needs to fund its $2.25 trillion, that's a huge number, uh, infrastructure investment plan. And so the way to do this is to keep U.S. companies from shifting their revenues abroad and being taxed at lower um, uh, at lower rates in places like Ireland. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Um, and, but also, uh, it's this has been a problem globally is that income in all many different countries are being shifted offshore to tax havens. And so where China comes into this, it doesn't much affect China, the mainland, directly. Where it, What it affects is Hong Kong, which according to a recent index, is the seventh largest tax haven in the world and the largest in Asia after you know perennial leaders like the uh, Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands and so forth. Um, and so the question becomes... How would a minimum corporate tax, which would be much higher than the uh, tax currently leveled on corporations uh, doing business in Hong Kong, how would that affect the willingness of companies to locate 
in Hong Kong and have income flow through their Hong Kong subsidiaries where it's taxed at such a low rate. Because as we know, Hong Kong is the conduit for up to 70% of the funds that flow into the mainland from abroad. Um, so it is vitally important to the mainland as a, a financial conduit. And, and so would this minimum tax level erode the attractiveness of Hong Kong as mm -hmm. a business center? We don't know that the, uh, the strong magnetic pool of the mainland as a business uh, center is likely to offset much, if not most, of, uh, of the uh, reduction in attractiveness from higher tax rates. But nevertheless, uh, this is going in the wrong direction in, in terms of Hong Kong's attractiveness, and will Beijing seek to uh, um, mitigate that in some way? Mm. We don't know. It's early days with this. And, uh, you know, as you know, uh, there are a number of countries in the world that are considered tax havens. Uh, the, the Netherlands, for instance, is the fourth largest tax haven in the world, surprisingly. There are a whole series of EU countries considered tax havens. And so is the EU going to be able to get on side for this minimum tax? We don't know. It's early days. It, they hope, and they, the G20 just had a statement saying, we hope to have a consensus-driven, quote-unquote, agreement by the middle of the year. But that's, there are a lot of hurdles to jump before we get there. A lot of cats to be herded. Yep. Joe Shin, what's your sense on this? Is this something that China would be worried about? I, I don't think so, because so every time talking about collecting taxes, I think China was quite interested. <laughs> <laughs> like every government. <laughs> yes, like every government, because, you know, the, the fiscal situation of uh, the, uh, uh, the Chinese governments are not in a very good situation. So, and I think China, more importantly, China really want to show that it is a, a responsible player in the international, at least the economic community, and wants to do its own part. So I don't think China will necessarily like, uh, reject the proposal from the Washington outright. Mm -hmm. Of course, there will be lots of uh, back and forth discussions. It's, it's, there's a long way to go that, you know, the moment will actually come, you know, uh, the governments can coordinate and uh, collect this minimum tax. Mm -hmm. But at this least, this is something... Uh, uh, Something you know can be put on the table to talk uh, between Beijing uh, and Washington and with other other international community members. Yeah. You mentioned Joshin earlier um, the call between Xi Jinping and Angela Merkel earlier this week. There's been some discussions with the, the as you mentioned in Paris as well. Um, to what extent have you seen Beijing sort of reacting to um, Biden's re-engagement multilaterally? We've seen, obviously, we're going to see the Japanese Prime Minister Suga visit um, Washington. On, on next Friday, the 16th. Next Friday, there's, I understand there's been some coverage of this in China as well. What's your sense of how, how the sort of reaction is playing out there? Oh, well, uh, certainly Beijing sees it as a concern. Of course, if there's a coalition led by the United States against China. This is certainly uh, one of the least desired scenario uh, for the Chinese government. So it has to do something. But, you know, the problem is for the Chinese government, if it looked around, not many true friends. So that's why, you know, after the Alaska meeting, you know, Wang Yi was particularly busy. He was entertaining, mm -hmm. you know, all the, uh, the, the Russian minister in Guilin and then all the Southeast Asia foreign ministers in Fujian, uh, Wang Ning Xiamen and Wang Ying uh, Nanping. And then also uh, you can see like Foreign Minister Wang Yi has been to Middle East. He has mm -hmm. been signing this 25-year agreement with Iran. And then he, he's uh, trying to play kind of, you know, uh, we are here for, for, the, for the region to the Middle East uh, countries. And also, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the phone call between uh, Xi and Moko apparently is saying, you know, 
European Union is uh, is uh, should have its own idea. You don't have to necessarily follow strategic the US. Autonomy. Yes, <laughs> strategic autonomy. You don't have to follow Washington all the time. You know, our market is always open for you. Here are some you know money to make. You know, these are the these are the um, I think it's natural response from 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 the Chinese government. It's, it's it's very symbolic that the uh, Biden's first face-to-face meeting at the White House is with the Japanese prime minister, emphasizing the importance of Asia to overall Biden uh, uh, diplomatic policy. And um, this comes uh, a month after the Quad meetings, uh, India, Japan, Australia, the United States, and comes amid... The, after the Alaska summit, where, we, where sharp words were exchanged, and since that Alaska summit, there seems to have been uh, a, a movement by both China and the United States to, by the United States, to try to uh, get allies on side, um, to try to make new connections, and by China to say, you know, be independent and, and don't do what the United States wants to, to want you to do. And so there's this game going on, and it's just starting, and this is likely to go on for some time. And um, going back to the whole question about the consumer boycotts and the Olympic boycotts, um, governments, companies, and consumers, in some respect, are being asked to choose sides. And this will be an ongoing theme, perhaps for years, Hmm. Uh, and we'll see how it transpires. Obviously, big issues like the Olympics, but it's small issues like, do I buy a Chinese cell phone or do I buy a U.S. cell phone or if if the U.S. actually made cell phones? (laughs) (laughs) Easy choice, that one. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But but you see, the point is that uh, that the Chinese consumers are starting to make that choice. And so where does this go? So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Joshin, what's on your agenda for the coming week? Well, I think one thing very interesting to see is is that we can, from the Washington side, is about mm. like from last night. You know, we have this uh, uh, U.S. senators having this two hundred eighty three page kind of strategic competition bill against China, and uh, we have uh, you know the, the 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 sanction list has been extended, including for seven first, more for the first time by Biden. Yes, yeah. for the first time by Biden to include seven more Chinese entities. And there are the 2040 by the National uh, Intelligence uh, Agencies talking about how China and the United States are going to compete head-to-head in the space. In all these kind of things, it's very interesting. And how, I'm, I'm quite interested to see you know, how these kind of strategic uh, hostilities is going to translate under, under, uh, onto the detailed policy and the specific policies. But one thing that we have also to uh, keep a close watch is the climate talk. You know, the Chinese mm. government has not officially said, you know, President Xi will... Uh, attend this uh, video conference. But if President Xi attended this video conference and talk with uh, climate change with the rest of the 40 state leaders, this also can be a kind of positive uh, thing, you know, at least the United States and China have something to talk about. Yeah, indeed. Um, and one final thought is that remember that Biden hasn't been in office yet for yet three months, not yet. It's still very early days here in all of this. Indeed, all the fun of the fair awaits. We will cover it as it happens. John Carter, Joe Shin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to a quick hit of the China Geopolitics podcast this week. I've been Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the SCMP. We'll be back next week with more analysis on all the big issues of the day. Until then, keep reading the news at scmp.com. Follow us on Twitter at SCMP Economy. Get your jabs, wear your masks, wash your hands, keep your distance, stay safe. Bye bye. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post. Head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.